John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 20 this morning. Once more, let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Give it our intention. This is not the word of man. This is the enduring, timeless, infallible word of the living God. John 8, verse 13 through 20. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have also known my you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Thus far God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that though there are many, as Paul warned, that would gather to themselves teachers, preachers who would tickle their ears. Father, we rejoice that you have given us a heart to desire to hear your word. We rejoice, O God, that you have placed us in a church and gathered us at this time to hear your word proclaimed. Father, we know that your instrument is frail, stuttering and stammering, and yet it is through the foolishness of preaching that you show forth your majesty. For you are the God who can try, take a crooked stick and strike a straight blow every time. Lord, bring your word to bear upon us for good, for comfort, for correction, for rebuke. Lord, we may even need some striking of the sword of the Spirit. But Lord, we know that all that you do with your word to your people is ultimately good for your glory, for our good, for the building up of your church. So magnify Christ in our midst, O God. Send forth your word with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I suspect many of you are familiar with the famous theologian and writer C.S. Lewis. Many of you will have read him. Your children, some of you may have heard his name, and maybe some of his books for children, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and so forth. But C.S. Lewis wrote a book titled God in the Dock. Children, I want you to think about it. The dock is, is the part of the courtroom. The dock is in the place where the accused person was placed before the judge. And then the prosecutor would come and present the witnesses and make a case against the person in the dock. Was he guilty or was he not guilty? And so when... C.S. Lewis writes his book, God in the Dock, the point he is making that in this his time, and we still see today, that man, arrogant, sinful man, would be so bold as to take the living God, as it were, and put him on trial. Find fault with him, accusations. You, you hear it in the questions like, well, if God is good and all-powerful, then why do bad things happen in the world? Well, the simple answer is it's because of Adam's sin. This world is cursed. We live under the fall. And we long for the day when God shall redeem all things. But indeed, C.S. Lewis's point is valid that 
Men want to put God on trial. They want to bring charges against the Holy One of Heaven to find fault with Him so then that they would excuse themselves. And therefore they thought they would need to be concerned about sin, wrath, judgment in the presence of a holy God. Children, I want you to think about this. That man, sinful mankind, would be so bold as to find fault with the holy God of heaven. He who alone is pure and righteous and undefiled, who dwells in unapproachable life. Only sinful man would be so bold as to put the creator on trial. Well, children, that should alarm us, but it's not far from any one of us. For indeed, if anyone does not accept the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the only Redeemer, the only way of salvation, as we will hear him later say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But someone who hears that and yet dismisses Christ, does not hear his command to repent and believe, and walks contrary and away from him, and and indeed the reality is you've put God on trial in your mind and said, I dismiss him. I don't listen to him. I'll go my own way. I'll trust my own intelligence. And ultimately, you're finding God. You're calling him out as a liar, which is blasphemy. How many times are parents dealing with children, parents, as we heard a moment ago, who are in the home as God's appointed authorities, very visible, present Reminders that God is God. He has given children parents to turn them from, to teach them from a young age that there's a greater authority, even God Himself. And yet, how often do children challenge their parents, argue with them, dismiss what they've said, or just straight out rebel and do what they want to do anyway? This is very wrong indeed, and even a young child can recognize when they do that they're wrong. But how much more so when God's creatures challenge, argue with, dismiss and just straight out disobey God. This is what we are seeing in this text. It's interesting how it aligns with what we saw in Isaiah. The dismissing of God's word sent through his prophets. And here we see the one who was the word of God in the mouth of the prophets, even the living incarnate God himself. And the men, the religious leaders, were ready to dismiss him. Uh, The scene that's before us is very much like the Pharisees are putting Jesus the Son of God, on trial. It's as though they want to put God in the dock. What are they saying? Your witness is not true. We will look at Jesus' defense of himself here, his witness concerning himself, that we should see that God is true and every man a liar. We can use four main headings. Stubborn unbelief on display. Jesus' divine authority the further hardening of hearts, and then finally we will see divine authority on display. We begin then with stubborn unbelief on display. The Pharisees' charge against Jesus comes right after the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's where we've just come from. We're just a day or so out from that. The Feast of the Tabernacles is ended. Remember, this is a feast like all three of the feasts that God has appointed. They're given by God to remind them of his faithfulness his steadfast love, his covenant love, that he had made a covenant with their father Abraham. And indeed, even as he told Abraham that his children would go down into Egypt some 430 years, and then he would raise up a shepherd to bring them out, that God would deliver them out of Egypt and bring them into the land that Abraham had walked upon, that God had promised to give to his descendants after him. 
And God has done that, and he's provided these feasts to remind them. Remember, God raised up a, a faithful shepherd for them, Moses, whom God said of Moses that there was no one as humble as he was on all the face of the earth. God sent Moses before them to lead them out of Egypt. The mighty miracles that uh, God performed through him brought them out of the house of slavery. How he spared the firstborn sons from death when the death angel went throughout all the land. All those who were under the blood of the lamb were spared. Thus Passover was instituted. He went with them then for the 40 years in the wilderness and he fed them faithfully every day with heavenly bread. He sustained them in a dry place with rock that flowed from the water. I'm the water that flowed from the rock. And he presented with them day after day with a pillar of light. For 40 years, John has just recorded that Jesus declared that he was the bread of heaven and that he was the life-giving water. He's just announced at the close of the Feast of the Tabernacle that he's the light of the world and that whoever follows him shall not watch, walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. These are great claims. And if Jesus was but a mere man, they would be preposterous. They would be boastful. They would be arrogant. He would not be believable. And yet, Jesus as he has demonstrated, and he is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Time and again, that's the beauty of Matthew's gospel. He keeps saying, it is written, and then he shows Jesus' fulfillment. It is written, and he shows Jesus' fulfillment of all these prophecies, so many prophecies. The Pharisees were the custodians of the word of God. They were the leaders of Israel, and yet they are set in stubborn unbelief. The hardness of their hearts is clearly displayed here. When they make a charge against Jesus, verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. We've already seen this many times, the objections of these men. They've seen the mighty miracles, uh, the signs of the waters. They've heard the signs and the wonders, they've heard the authoritative preaching, and yet they always object. They always find something, some fault. They want something more, another sign. We heard that even after the feeding of the 5,000 with the bread. They wanted another sign. What we need to understand is unbelief never runs out of objections. Unbelief never runs out of objections. The charge that the Pharisees are making comes from them wrongly applying what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 19.15. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. This requirement, the context that is given in when there was a matter of sin or iniquity, somebody accused of some sin or iniquity, often then resulting in capital punishment, which means they were to be stoned. Their very life would be the penalty for their crime. And God said that it required two or three witnesses, no one could be put to death with less than that. But Jesus is not on trial for any crime. Uh, this is not a hearing like what we saw Jesus subjected to back in John 5. If these religious leaders were really seeking to be faithful to the scripture, they would have applied the standards that God gave to them to test a prophet. Is this a faithful prophet? Does what he say come true? That would be the standard. 
By that standard, Jesus has clearly demonstrated that he is sent from God. The signs and the wonders that he performs attest that he is a sign, that he is sent from God. Even as Elijah and Elisha perform miracles, that the people of God would know this is God's prophet. He has sent this one, and what he says should be heard. Remember, I'll remind you that the sermon we heard from John 5, 31 through 47, we saw there was a fourfold witness to Jesus being the Christ, John the Baptist, Jesus' mighty works, the word of God the Father, and the scriptures all bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that so believing this, you might have life in his name. He is the prophet promised and foretold through Moses. Now Jesus has pointed out that their real problem uh, that was with the Pharisees in verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. That's their real problem. Their standard is judging according to the flesh. He says, I charge no one um, implied according to the flesh. You judge according to the flesh. I don't judge anyone according to the flesh. Jesus has much more intimate knowledge. Remember back in chapter 2, we were told that many believed in him, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. Jesus doesn't judge from externals. They're judging according to the flesh. They're judging based on what they see. Because they are sealed in unbelief and have hardened hearts, that's all they have to judge with. They can only judge with what they see through their eyes, hear with their ears, but even that which comes into them is affected by sin. We could say the filter within them is sin. Everything is distorted and twisted because of sin so that it cannot render true and faithful judgments consistently. Jesus has rightly declared that he has that he was and indeed is the light of the world. But all they saw was a man that they knew to be the son of Joseph. That's what they could see. They judged according to the flesh. That's what they understood. Here again we see strong evidence of the humiliation of the Son of God as he came into the world. This one that is engaging with him is none other than the Son of God, eternal with the Father, the same substance with the Father, part of the Trinity, pure God of God, light of light, no flaw, no fault in him, and yet he was willing to take on our humanity and come into the world to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to keep the law. And his humanity hid his deity. These, these men, they could only judge with their eyes. They, they are blinded to the reality that this is the Son of God. His glory is hidden, as we might say, by the veil of his humanity. What a humiliation that God walked amongst men. And all they beheld was the man from Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, are not his brothers and sisters with us. That's all that unbelief allowed them to see. What a glorious reality that God has come in the flesh into the world to save sinners. But it was necessary in order for Jesus to save us that he would suffer, as our our confessions rightly point out, these steps of humiliation coming from heaven, born of a woman, born under the law, walking amongst men, being uh, reviled, uh, spat upon, ultimately beaten, smitten, uh, 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 a crown of thorns placed upon his head, be struck, uh, to be stretched out on a Roman cross after having been falsely accused and to be crucified, but there, hanging before heaven and earth, 
upon him the sins of all those whom the Father had given to him, and there enduring the wrath of God for his people. It was necessary to be humiliated in this way. Remember Philippians 2 where Paul says that it was that he was rose again. And then, you know, Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him. Why? Because Jesus was willing as a son of God to undergo this humiliation. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And now he has given him a name which is above every name, that every knee should bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, the Pharisees could not see this. Now, this was not a matter of intelligence. These are brilliant men. These are scholars. These are men with great intelligence. That's not... The problem. The problem's not in their head. The problem's in their heart. These men have a heart problem. These Pharisees would have been the most educated men in all the realm, and particularly in the matters of the scriptures. No doubt able to quote whole portions and uh, enjoying very much to sit around and debate and go back and forth over the meaning of this text or that text. But all of them, this did not help them, for they were enormously proud of their learning. They boasted in what they knew. They they had a confidence in what they knew. They also enormously proud of how well they kept these laws that they had created. For they took and laid layer upon layer of man's law and God's law. And then they walked around and strutting and boasting. You know, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, praying at the street corners, uh, putting their alms in to be seen by men. He said they have their reward. He tells us that we are to do these things in secret so that our Father who sees in secret would reward us openly. This this is the nature of these men, proud and arrogant and blind. And Jesus begins by calling sinners to faith and repentance. It is necessary that one must acknowledge their sinfulness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He begins with an acknowledgement before a holy God. I am spiritually bankrupt. Furthermore than that, I am filthy with sin. God have mercy on me. And these men, they, they don't see it. Oh, the sinners are around there, the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes and the, the low life and the rubble of the streets. Those were sinners. But these men, they, they did not see themselves as sinners. They were so proud of their ability to keep the law that they had created. You saw that when we were looking at the passage where these men set the trap for the woman in order to use her to set the trap for Jesus. The arrogance, the audacity, and indeed the display of the hardness of their heart. Hardness of heart and a belief leads men, women, boys and girls to reject the light of the world. If you believe you have light, you see no need for the light that Christ is. Harry Ironside was the, the pastor of Moody Church in the earlier part of the last century, like early 1900s into the mid-1900s. And he, he recounts an exchange that took place between Sir Isaac Newton and one of his unbelieving friends who saw in that friend the same problem of his heart. This is what Isaac Newton recounts of this exchange that he had with his friend. This goes back into the time, children, before we had lights that you could just flip the switch. Uh, when you came into the room, you needed to come and light the candle. But what you would do is, before you left the room, you would lower the extinguisher, a little cap that would come down on the candle, and put it out, so you knew the fire was out. So this is what's in view here. 
Isaac Newton speaking to his friend. Sometimes I come into my study, and in my absent-mindedness, I attempt to light my candle when the extinguisher is over it. And I fumble about trying to light it, and I cannot. But then when I remove the extinguisher, then I am able to light the candle. I'm afraid that the extinguisher, in your case, is the love of your sins. It is deliberate unbelief that is in you. Turn to God in repentance. Be prepared to let the Spirit of God reveal His truth to you. And it will be His joy to show the glory of the grace of God shining in the face of Jesus. What a glorious testimony. The burden this man has for his friend that he should speak that. And what a picture. You know, this, our love for sin extinguishes our ability to be led. You see that with the Pharisees. They love their sin. They love themselves. They love their self-righteousness. Like Jesus said in another occasion, those who think they're well, they, they see no need of a doctor. And so it was with these men. My friends want to make application. Do not allow your love for sin to keep you from Jesus. Do not trust in yourself, in your own goodness, to keep you from the only one who is good. Your very best works are but filthy rags. Do not think that you can put God in the dock, pass judgment on him, find fault with him. It is you who stands before the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the judge of all. And indeed, we will all appear before him on that great last day and be judged by him. Well, we see Jesus then respond, Jesus' divine authority. We, we know the scriptures are the very word of God. We heard from 2 Timothy 4 a little bit ago. Uh, the earlier or tail end of the previous chapter, we were told that the scriptures are God's exhalation, his breath breathed out through holy men of old, as Peter puts it. They are the very breath of God, and they are profitable for rebuke, for correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness. Now, the scriptures, how do we know that the scriptures are the word of God? Um, unbelieving hearts, hard hearts say it's circular reasoning. But follow me here. We know the scriptures are the very word of God because they are self-authenticating. If we look to any source outside of the scriptures to tell us this is the word of God, if we were trusting some other source to say this is the very word of God, that source, that standard, that man, that institution would be greater than the word of God. And indeed, we need outside authorities for many things. But when it comes to the word of God, it is self-authenticating. It bears witness. The spirit who inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures bears witness that the word of God is God-breathed. And so when unbelievers scoff and mock at them, they have hard hearts. These Pharisees were schooled in the scriptures, and yet it was just like so many words bouncing around in their heads. We must have a new heart, a heart of flesh, to hear the word of God. I, I marvel, um, you know, I think of occasions where my wife will be reading a good book and scriptures quoted. And, of course, when you come to the quote, it's in quotes, but even as I do when I read, I just keep reading along. And there's, she'll be, I'll be hearing the words of men, and it's like, oh, that's Scripture. Okay, that's man. It's just there's the Word of God is unlike any other thing. We take up the Word of God. I've, I've met people who said they were converted by reading often the book of John because the Spirit opened their hearts, opened their eyes, gave them a new heart, and they, they realized this is the most remarkable book. It is unlike anything else I've read many in glory, will testify to that. Self-authenticating. 
that it is the Word of God. There's no other book like it in all of history and in all of the earth. Oh, other false religions, uh, false religions have their holy books. Um, when I was in seminary, I think particularly like an Old Testament uh, introduction or survey, we, we considered some of the other books that are out there, uh, you know, the Quran, the, uh, I can't forget the book that Buddhists and when the Hindus follow it. You read these things and it's just like, it's often just very muddled. Um, I remember that uh, in the same thing we were talking about textual criticism, we saw some of the texts from uh, the Gospel of uh, Titus or some of these other things that are put forth, other authors. And, and you read it and you're just like, you know, there's uh, supposed to be the book of Enoch. That was one when I was in Hayside. We had a local guy that, that to him, that was the Bible. So I wanted to be prepared to answer. So I found the book of Enoch and I read it and I was just like, what a mess. Now, there's true things in it. You know, there's things that uh, whoever the author was that borrowed from scriptures, but it's just not scripture. And if you know scripture, you read something that's not, and it's just like something's lacking. It's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is also self-authenticating. Remember how John opens, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus is the Word. All these words that are in the Scripture, Jesus is that Word. He's the one that moved upon the prophets, whether it was Moses all the way to John with the closing book of Revelation. It's Jesus, the Word, that is in them, inspired them by His Spirit to write faithfully and true. And Jesus, like the Word of God, as He is the Word of God, needs no witness for Himself. He's self-authenticating. Isn't it interesting? The people, the ordinary people that heard him preach said, he doesn't teach like our teachers. He preaches with authority. They heard something remarkable, something unique about Jesus coming from him. And so it is, Jesus is the light of the world. It is in his light that we see light. Light does not need anything or anyone to let you know that it's light. Children, I want you to remember what I talked about last week when I was counting being down in Mammoth Cave and the lights were turned out. We were deep down the ground and it was so dark. What was it that drove the darkness away? You remember it was when the, the park ranger struck a, struck a match and he held it up and it was amazing that one little flame, what it did, you remember. Now, it was very evident to everyone what that was. That was light. Nobody needed to debate it. We didn't need to say, hold on a minute. I'm not sure if that's light, Ranger. Where's your authority to demonstrate, to prove to me, to argue and convince me that that's light? It was self-authenticating. It was light in the darkness. How much more the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world. It was filled with darkness from sin. He does not need to prove it. He is self-authenticated. And yet there's proofs all abound with the mighty works that he did and the authority of his preaching. And so when Jesus speaks in John or in verse 14, he's contrasting the true character of his testimony with the false character of the Pharisees' claim. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Jesus points out here that he came from heaven, and he is returning there. He says, I know that. He was very much aware. Jesus is saying, I know myself. I know the facts about myself. I know where I came from. I know where I am going. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, 
It is a faithful testimony because he knows who he is. And his testimony should be fully accepted. This is not the testimony of any mere man. This is the testimony of God himself. But he says, where on the other hand, to the Pharisees, you don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. You lack the knowledge so that your testimony is of no value. Your testimony is worthless in these matters. You don't even know who I am. Later on, he says, if you'd known who I was, you would have known the Father sent me. Children, I want to see if I can help you to understand what Jesus is saying here. Imagine something happens in your living room. You're in the living room. Your mom's in the other room. Something happens. There's a crash, and something is broken. And, of course, mom comes in, wants to know what happened. And so she's starting to ask you questions. But your brother runs in for another room and interrupts. She says, no, 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 I'll tell you what happened. Would that not be ridiculous? You know, what is, he doesn't know. There's no testimony. There's no value to his testimony. He wasn't there. He didn't see it. So how can he interrupt and say, you know, listen to me. I'll tell your mom what happened. That's sort of like what the Pharisees are saying. They have no idea. And yet they want to challenge Jesus in his testimony. It would be pretty upsetting if you were the one in the room when the cat knocked over the vase and you're trying to tell your mom that. And your brother's saying, oh, no, no, that's not what happened. I saw Billy. He, he bumped it. You see, the Pharisees were just ridiculous in what they were doing. This is sinful men. Jesus knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. Sinful men with hard hearts do not know. They cannot know. They need to have new hearts from above by the work of the Spirit in order to know. So Jesus also points out his intimate union with the Father, verse 15 and 16. He says, I judge according to... Or you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. This very naturally comes from the previous point. The Pharisees lacked the necessary knowledge to judge rightly. But that didn't keep them from judging others, did it? That was their standard practice. They're always passing judgment on anything and everybody. They were quick to condemn the sins of other men and excuse their own. Because they judged according to the flesh. They judged by sight. Therefore, they sought to keep the sixth commandment. And they believed they kept the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And yet when they were angry with others, that was in the heart. Couldn't be seen. Nobody could see it. They excused themselves. But Jesus comes along in the servant of the mountain. And he says, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you have broken the sixth commandment. Jesus says that to look on another with lust is to break the seventh commandment. They judged by what could be seen and excused themselves. Jesus says, no, the heart is guilty, and there are many sins that are in the heart. And so he condemned them. Jesus taught that his father sees in secret and judges accordingly. David celebrates that. He finds comfort then at Psalm 139. He says, even if I go to the far ends of the earth, if I go into the depths of the sea, no matter where I go, even you are there. You see me, and you keep watcher over me. Jesus has this perfect knowledge and can judge perfectly, and so yet he says here, in verse 15, see, I judge no one. This is consistent with what we saw in John three seventeen. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
At this time, Jesus is not there as the judge, and yet Jesus is judging. In a sense, he's engaging these men. He's, he's passing judgment on the falseness or what they're doing. But he's ultimately, he's come to save. But another aspect is, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one according to the flesh. Jesus has intimate knowledge as the Son of God. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He sees things far differently. Jesus then goes on to defend his authority as being true. Why? Because Jesus' judgment is never alone. Because he is never alone. Early on in John, you will remember, from, the, from like almost the opening pages of John, um, I told you that what we see Jesus consistently saying, and then we went through John and we looked at various passages. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father saying. He's from the outset been sent from the Father. He's one with the Father. He's doing the will of the Father. He obeys the Father in every single thing. He is never apart from the Father. And so therefore, his witness is not his alone, but it's also the testimony of his Father. Jesus is never a mere man when he judges. He is the God-man, God incarnate. We are taught here the unity and harmony that is within the three persons of the Trinity. There is never a discord between them. Everything that we see Jesus doing, it is in harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. There's no conflict within them. And we could say that Jesus does not act alone. The only thing that Jesus does uniquely as the Son of God is incarnation. Conceived of the woman, the Virgin Mary, born in our flesh, walking amongst men, going to the cross, and in his flesh dying. That's unique to Jesus, but as the Son of God, he is completely united to the Father, in harmony with the Father, one with the Father. There's no conflict with the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are in absolute harmony about everything. So when Jesus speaks, it is a testimony of God, as well as of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so it was at Jesus' baptism, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if Jesus', Jesus judgments were not faithful, if they were unrighteous or false, or if he was a liar or a deceiver, the Father would have never made such a pronouncement. But Jesus is never any of those things. And so the Father can testify, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the ultimate testimony of the Father is when Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father gave him such authority. We're told that the Spirit raised him from the dead. We're also told that the Father, the Father with the raising of Christ, though there's no word spoken, the visible representation, the visible Christ coming forth from the grave is the testimony of the Father that all that this man has done, this God-man, my son, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Father welcomed him back into heaven. Even as Jesus said, I know where I am going. Remember what else Jesus said, particularly to the three, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus, in some sense, the veil was pulled back. They they didn't see the fullness of the glory of God. They were sinful men. They could not have beheld it, but they saw some display that Jesus had as the glory of God. And it seemed that they were somewhat sleepy, and Peter says, oh, let me build booths for you and Moses and Elijah. And... Then the cloud descends, and what do they hear? This is my beloved son, and who I'm well pleased. What did the father then say? Hear him. Hear him. Children, moms and dads, men and women, the father is still saying to us, hear him. 
hear my son. These Pharisees are not willing. They're so used to hearing their voice. And indeed, if we're going to come to Christ as sinners, we must hear Christ in his call. We must hear the truth he speaks to us of our sinfulness and our need of him. Well, Jesus continues to press the point of the absolute harmony between his testimony and the Father's as we go on to verse 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So what Jesus does here, he's referring to Deuteronomy 17.6, and there's other passages like that. But Deuteronomy 17.6 says, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Notice that Jesus calls it your law. That's the law of God, but he's pressing because the Pharisees, that's what they clung to. That's what their hope was. Remember, he rebukes them in another place. He says, you search the scriptures, for you think in so doing you have salvation. They loved the law. They loved to debate the law. They loved to make it known to men how much they knew of the law. And so he says, you call it your law because they claim to respect it and follow it. And so he sets out before them that the testimony of two is sufficient for the putting to death of a guilty one. How much more the testimony of God, the Father and God the Son. How much more uh, weight is that than any testimony of any mere man? When God speaks, and as the writer of Hebrews says, that in these days God has spoken in his Son. When God speaks... We are to hear him. Any member of the Trinity to speak if God the Father speaks or God the Son speaks or God the Spirit speaks. We are to hear him. There is no other like the voice of God. And indeed, their speaking is the word of God. We need to hear it. We need to heed it. We need to be humbled under it. We need to tremble before it. And we need to heed the warnings of God and the command of God to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These men, they're full of themselves. They're all about their law. And so Jesus points out to them that he has a greater testimony than any mere man. What is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Moms, you you know how when something happens, some altercation, something goes on, maybe an okay thing, but you want to know what happened. You know, if you got two of your children, you talk to them separately, and they tell you the same thing, you think, okay, I think I know what's happening. Two witnesses, right? Now, we know because children and men are sinful, they might have conferred off in the back and said, okay, this is what we're going to tell mom. This is our story. We're going to stick to it. But we often put the stock in that. You know, the two witnesses telling us the same thing. We say, well, this must be what happened. But how much more so when God testifies that he is God and he cannot lie. He's a faithful testimony. Jesus is claiming that he has divine authority and therefore his witness is true. If Jesus said, my witness is not true, which back in John 5, when we dealt with that, that was one of the things. He said, if I said that, I would be lying. Can you imagine, Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, then saying, well, yeah, my witness, you know, it's not worth anything. It's preposterous. Anything that Jesus says is absolutely true. And so Jesus 
the claims as divine authority, but his witness is not alone. It's also that of the Father. Um, verse 18, there's something of a chiasm. Remember, I've told you about the Greek letter chi. It's not an X. It's, it's a chi, but it looks like our X. It sits a little differently if you put it on the line. But the chi, there's, there's these verses that are structured that there's an intersection point, and that's what's going on here. I am the one who bears witness of myself. And notice at the end, of the, the Father who bears witness of me. It begins with Christ, ends with Christ. The transaction is in the middle of the Father. These Pharisees boasted to know the Father, be doing the will of the Father. And Jesus says, my witness is that also of the Father. Indeed, Jesus is right to claim, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall walk in the light of life. Even with all this testimony from the greatest witness ever, God the Father and God the Son, these men are not moved. Which brings us to our third point. Verse 19, and they said to him, where's your father? Uh, All the commentators are right. You can just imagine them gesturing at that point. They're in the court of the women. They're there at the tabernacle, the temple. Where's your father? You're talking about your father. Produce him. His father's in heaven. His father's with him. His father is God. He's all around. He's, he's the one who sustains him. But you see, the harness. Jesus has borne a powerful testimony concerning himself. He has set out that the father bears witness of himself. And their response is, where's your father? Where is it? We don't see him. Because they judge according to the flesh. They're looking for Joseph. That's who they're looking for. This evidence of the hardness of their hearts is on full display. They've rejected the testimony of Jesus. There's also not just Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Son of God. And they've rejected his testimony. I'm thinking about some of these great, well-known, I don't want to say great, well-known atheists of our day, very intelligent men. And they, they come to the scriptures and they parse it out and they mock it and they make fun of it because what are they doing? They're doing the same thing as these Pharisees. They're judging with their eyes. All their brilliance and intelligence And they miss the reality that even is on their hearts. They are sinners, full of depravity. They have guilt that they deny and they suppress and they push away. I remember hearing one of the great apologists, I don't remember who it was. Um, I think it might have been R.C. Sproul, debating an unbeliever. And they debated, well, all the rules of debate back and forth and so forth. But after the debate was over, came alongside the man. He says, but what do you do with your guilt? do with your guilt because every atheist who argues and seeks to persuade and convince himself there is no God there's no such thing as sin there's no heaven or hell there's no afterlife I don't need a savior they have guilt all these big arguments leave it all aside and R.C. Sproul understood it what do you do with your guilt my friends only Christ can address our guilt Because only he can atone for our sins. And by his blood wash us white as the driven snow. Only Jesus can give us a righteousness to stand before God without guilt. Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. All the prophecies concerning the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus. These mighty works that Jesus did demonstrated that he was no mere man, but God, the word, come in human flesh. 
The father is authenticated that this is his beloved son. And then in the hardness of their hearts, they say, where's your father? They need new hearts. Well, the last thing we see here is divine authority on display. One final thing before we close. Jesus has made great claims. In the last few chapters, we heard him say, I am the bread of life. I'm the living water. I am the light of the world. These men hated him for all that he had to say and all that he had been doing. Jesus was upsetting their power, their power structure, their position, their authority. He's exposing their sin, their corruption, and their unbelief. And they have been determined for months, probably something over a year, they have already determined, we will murder this man. They are resolved to do it. John tells us something. You read verse 20, and it's like, okay, that's interesting, but it is interesting. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury was in the court of the women because everybody could come there except for the Gentiles. And there were large um, casks shaped like trumpets. They were, there were big uh, pieces of furniture that were open to receive the tithes and offerings of God's people. And they were labeled. I believe I remember reading there was 13 of them. There were different offerings these went to. And so the people could come and put them in there. And thus, this is why it was also often called the treasury, because these places to receive offerings were present in that place. This is in the court of the woman. But if you know the temple layout, what is right near at hand is where the Sanhedrin meet. You remember, children, what the Sanhedrin is? This is the ruling body. Some of the Pharisees, some of the Sadducees, the elders of the people. These, this is the re- ruling body for Israel. Yes, they're under Rome. Rome allows it, recognizes it. The Sanhedrin has powerful authority. The guards that are sent out are sent out by the Sanhedrin. Jesus was right there. And the place where the Sanhedrin met to make judgments was near at hand. These people hated him. These religious leaders, they wanted to seize him. They wanted to put him to the death. Do you see the divine authority on display? No one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not come. This is right on the heels of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus is going to die at the time of the Passover because the Passover lamb points to Jesus. And that is exactly when he shall die. And we'll see as we move on to John, the Pharisees and the leaders, they're all like, oh, we can't do that. It's time of the feast. The people will be upset. He's going to die at the time of the feast because God had said that he would. Even when he sent the death angel through the land of Egypt and the lamb, the lamb, the blood of the lamb preserved the people pointing to the one who would come. And Jesus dies at that. Jesus is in the upper room eating the last legitimate Passover meal. No room for Seder meals. Remember that. Last legitimate Passover meal. And there he institutes the meal of the new covenant, the Lord's table. Because it all culminates. And it goes out. He is crucified. But that's his hour. As you, I've told you, John refers to his hour. That point has not come. This is still some months away. We see divine authority. God governs all his creatures, all their actions. How were they restrained? Why did they not seize him? We're not told. We're just told they didn't do it. Because his hour had not yet come. God is God. God is in control. We'll see even when we come to the final week, the events that take place, that Jesus, as the Son of God, is making arrangements. So it all happens exactly as the Father has foretold. I'm going to close with a pastor's 
cry to the unconverted. That day that Jesus spoke, his message fell on deaf ears. Blind eyes couldn't see the mighty works that God had done. Deaf ears stopped up against the glorious truth who he is. And like all sinners without Christ, they had hearts of stone. That's not different today. Without Christ, you have a heart of stone. My precious little lambs, children of the covenant, come to Christ. All you need is cry out, God, have mercy on me. God, give me a heart of flesh. Give me faith and repentance to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is showing your sin, he's also showing you the Savior. Look to Christ. Whatever your age may be, look to Christ. Do not trust in yourself. Come to Christ. Do not be like these boastful, arrogant Pharisees. Indeed, if you resist Christ, you are just like the boastful, arrogant Pharisees. Come as a little child to Christ and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen? Let us pray. Lord God, indeed, have mercy on us as sinners. We rejoice, O God, that you have had mercy. You did send your Son. He was crucified, dead, buried, and ascended your, raised again and ascended to your right hand, ruling and reigning. And we see his rule of majesty, that he blesses the preaching of his word through stammering, stuttering, sinful lips of men, and yet showing forth his glory. Lord, bless your word. Call unto yourself all our covenant children, Lord. Bring them into the kingdom and any others who are without Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.